you know, the gratitude movement is now a thing. You know, there's gratitude journals and they teach gratitude at, you know, higher universities. And yet we still have so far to go, you know, like, can we keep our attention on all that we already have? That's abundance rather than to be wanting more. Oh, it's such an honor to have Tercy and Matthew Englehart here today. Tercy and I have been busily working on a program that we're going to do together in June at their wonderful farm, the Bee Love Farm. And as we were working on that, she just kind of like dropped little tidbits about her story and dropped little tidbits about, you know, the beginnings of Cafe Gratitude and her love story. And I was just like, we have to have her on the podcast. Work is love make visible. Here's a story that absolutely fits that bill. So I wanted to just start by asking about your love story. So yeah, if you would share with us your love story and, and where, where it came in your lives and what it meant to you at the time and what it birthed. Okay, I'll go first and then Matthew can add to that. My background is I actually came through abuse as a, I was a competitive athlete, abuse as a teenager, and then lived with addiction, eating disorder for 20 years. And I had three marriages, three children, and I didn't meet Matthew until I was in my 50s. And I really had this idea that I thought maybe I'm just not going to find my partner in this lifetime. All I ever really wanted to do was have a lifetime partner, have children, raise a family. And partnership for me was probably at the top of my list. And yet I'd failed three times. Now, admittedly, I was an addict in all of those relationships and I also married addicts. So the odds probably weren't that good, weren't in my favor. But I met Matthew when I was a little over 50. Matthew's younger than I am. And we we started just great friends. I was working for a transformational organization in San Francisco And he had gone through a divorce not that long ago and had moved to San Francisco from upstate New York. And we were just buds. He had a girlfriend. I had a boyfriend. And then, you know, one day he just said, you know, I realize I'd like to have a more committed relationship with you. And I was like, you're so not my type. And he was, what do you mean I'm not you type? We're best friends. And really, we've been together ever since then. We got married when I was 52. We started Cafe Gratitude when I was 54. And this year is our 20th anniversary. So it's not your classic love story. And it's been a beautiful relationship. We believe that the context for relationship is not one of comfort or ease or security, but that relationship can be used as an opportunity to awaken to learn to love more deeply, more unconditionally. So yeah, it's been a journey and yeah, he's still my favorite person in the whole world. So what about you? Anything you want to add to that? Well, we have a saying, if you want comfort, get a dog. (laughs) Don't get a relationship because how we see relationship is you want to expose your ego to the bone, get in relationship. It's all going to be right there. You're inviting a 24-7 emotional, egoic mirror into your life. So it's not a path for the timid. And yeah, I was divorced. I was in, in my rebound relationship. 
And I thought Tennessee was too old for me or whatever. <laughs> you know, I had some conversation anyway, but I realized, wow, I, I could hang out with this being for my whole life. I, eh, I better better get get on the mat there and and get down there and ask her. So yeah, that was pretty much it. I'm such a sucker for love story. I'm already like tearing <laughs> up. <laughs> so now the birth story, the birth story of Cafe Gratitude and how that arose actually from your love, from the, from that best friends, from the commitment that you made and, and where that kind of, where that child was, how that child was conceived. We have to have the conception story and then, and then birth. So when we got together, we were kind of looking for the next thing. There was a time when we both thought we would take on leadership roles in landmark education, but we saw it by doing that, we wouldn't be able to hang out, have much time together because it's such an incredible commitment. So we were kind of looking for our thing. And one day I was driving around San Francisco and I got this download. We need to invent a board game. And the board game is going to train people in the being of abundance, that human beings are born into a paradigm of scarcity, not enough love, not enough time, not enough money, not not enough beauty, not enough. And the, the ego is, in its essence, is not enough. And yeah, I was just go, okay, we're going to invite this board game because, oh, we'd been, we'd been trying to enroll people in workshops and seminars. That was our job with Landmark. And it's such a drag to try to sell people, you know, a weekend, so to speak. And you know, people are just so resistant <laughs> to changing their lives. So a board game that transforms people, that's easy. We don't have to enroll them in anything. Sit down, roll some dice. So we sat down and we actually took about a year. We had started with some index cards and some dice or a spinner and a blank canvas. And we spent a year inventing this board game called The Abounding River, which trains the players in six qualities of spirit, we would say, which are creation responsibility, being responsible for your experience, self-worth as opposed to shame, love acceptance, gratitude, generosity, and abundance, knowing that you are provided for. So that took us about a year and we engaged an artist to make this incredible board game and cards and everything. And at some point we said, well, how are we going to market this? We don't know how to market a game. And we decided, oh, let's open a restaurant. Everyone has to eat. We'll have the game on the table and they'll have to they'll have to play the game. So we practiced on our friends for about three months, making food, inviting them all in. And one day our friend who liked free stuff said, well, When are you gonna open this restaurant? You keep talking about it. I said, I said to her, Henri, when we get a sign from God, we're gonna open the restaurant. And literally the next day we were driving from the Alamany farmer's market to our house and there was a sign on a commercial space in the mission that said restaurant for sale. And literally we looked at it, we bought it, we opened, and that was the beginning of an insanely crazy social experiment called <laughs> Cafe Gratitude. You know, the experience in the cafe was intended to be like a live expression of the game. So a lot of the elements from the game we incorporated into the environment, the culture of the restaurant. And so people would ask the question of the day, which might be, you know, like Matthew was saying, what do you love about your mother? What would you like to be forgiven for? It could be any number of things. And we would ask that at the tables. And even if people resisted it, like, I don't want to hear the question of the day. 
we was fine. We didn't force it on anyone, but that we have so many stories of those people kind of coming around and then asking us to make sure that we ask them the question of the day. Because part of what we were doing was just breaking down those crusty walls of separation and helping people actually get in their hearts instead of living in their minds, but like really feel their hearts. And, you know, like Matthew said, it was a, it was a bizarre experiment that happened to do well. You know, it's, it's a diluted version now of the early days and it's still a powerful expression, but yeah, that's how it got started. Yeah. You have this crazy idea <laughs> and, <laughs> and like we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. So you have this crazy idea and you go, okay, we're going for it. You have this experience where it sounds like there was this aliveness, like with the staff and with the customers and these moments of transformation, but you use those words, but it wasn't a commercial venture. So like every question the entrepreneur asks is where where did the money come from? Like how did you how did you fund this? Like how did you get it going? And how did you keep it going? Well, in the early days, well we su- In the we- early days we sunk all of our, you know, Matthew had sold the business, we sunk all of our money into it. And and really like honestly how San Francisco kind of imploded and Los Angeles exploded was, you know, we we had built such a tight-knit community. It never occurred to us that we would ever have to defend our culture or defend our we just never occurred to us. We shared money equally. People tips, were tips. We were, people were, you know, a part of, you know, everything that we did, the culture, we were really close knit. And then there came a time where it just took a couple of people and a kind of aggressive lawyer and who wanted to try to create a class action suit. And what they questioned was this gray area of tip sharing, which is still a gray area in the restaurant business. You know, there's a, by the letter of the law, only the people that touch the table have the right to the tips. But we did this, you know, thing where everybody who by the law gets tips voted every year, whether they wanted to continue to share it with the back of the house. And, you know, we always did, but then it just took a few people and a, like I said, an assertive lawyer. So then all of a sudden we were dealing with lawsuits and we hadn't set ourselves up to defend the entity. And that's really what caused, you know, several closures. We sold the building. At that time, we had, I don't know, seven or eight restaurants up here, and we were utilizing a central kitchen model, and we lived above the central kitchen. So ultimately, we sold that building. We only kept the restaurants open that could manage with an independent kitchen and didn't need the centralized food production. But interestingly enough, while that was happening, someone came up here who fell in love with the idea and the concept and wanted to bring it to Los Angeles. And we ended up creating a partnership and that's how we ended up with seven restaurants in LA. So, you know, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to realize that failure is probably inevitable. And oftentimes it's out of failure that the next thing is birthed and you just have to not quit, not give up, not quit. First of all, I'm realizing as I'm listening that I went to, I guess it was Cafe Gratitude in the mission. For some reason, I was thinking you started in Los Angeles, but now I'm 
I'm going back to a memory 20 years ago when a friend took me to this great restaurant in the mission. That's the original one. That's it. That's fun to remember that. That's funny because on this Idaho trip, this woman shows up with a photograph, like a developed photograph, pre-cell phone of 2004 with Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, her daughter and herself. And in the background is this little electric gem that we used to run produce from our house over to the cafe and we parked it on the sidewalk. And, you know, it's like she was, and she bought the game then, and she's the one that brought the game to this community dinner and we all played it. But, you know, it, it's wild how many people that little place impacted in the years that it was open. Cause it was just so, yeah, it was so unique. So bizarre. The, the thing that's really with me is, you know, the surface version of looking at cafe gratitude or looking at be love farm could be one of you know that Californian oh it's all about love and joy and you know they you know they don't know the real you know all my problems yet the constant theme I'm hearing here is in your marriage that it's about it's not about comfort it's about discomfort and that transformation is actually about death and what what comes with death humility letting go and and also that business is about coming to terms with failure. So I'm really hearing that as a strong theme throughout. And I'm wondering whether you could share with us a story about death, letting go, failure that has happened through your journey together. Well, the, when we got sued by our employees about the tip sharing thing, and it, it felt like a huge betrayal. And the death was to let go, but not stop caring. Because you could go to, I don't give an F, you know, but it was like, so first of all, use the opportunity. It's like all, it's like a psychological gymnasium. Okay. Betrayal. There's something here for me to learn. Okay. And our experiences, as you go up, as you advance in consciousness, the betrayal ordeals increase in intensity because there's more to die to. You're okay. You learned that one. Now die to this. Now die to this. I mean, if you look at the story of Jesus, it's the ultimate betrayal, right? But he was a master. He was he was a, such a master that he could say, "Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do." Well, that's our job. All of us. That's our job. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. They got caught up in matter. They got caught up in fear. You know, another big one for us was when we started the restaurant. You know, we were eating raw food diet and. Then, you know, in winter, we started at, we added soup and quinoa and rice. That was kind of how we navigated the early days. And then Matthew and I, we moved to the farm, which was just a piece of land. We lived in a yurt for eight years and kind of camped out. And we were both avoiding being the public face of Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre and kind of giving Los Angeles an opportunity to birth. Our kids went down and helped start that. And, you know, what happened is we began to add, you know, dairy and eggs and some meat into our diet. And then this whole thing blew up again. You can look it up. It's called Slaughter Gate. And we actually got more publicity for beginning to not be vegan 
on our own farm and our own diet, nothing to do with the restaurants than we did for all the good that Cafe Gratitude ever did. It, 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 who was the person who... Uh, it went national. It was on Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. The, it went the, around the world. It was yeah. like we had CBS truck C- outside. trucks outside our farm here, which was... Protests at the restaurant. It was death, crazy. Death threats. Just yeah. because Ma and Pa Vegan had started eating animal protein. And, and what we realized was... You know, when people create leaders, because really you're not a leader unless there's people looking up to you, people create you as a leader. When people create you as a leader, and then if you change your mind or change your path, it lives for them like a betrayal, like you've let them down. I still think that a plant-based diet is a very healthy alternative and especially important if you're shifting from a conventional diet into a more conscious aware diet. I totally support that. For us living on the farm in winter outdoors, we, we needed more well, heat. But also just the what, and regenerative an, farming. What animals provide in the yeah. in, in the regenerative farming model is if you're gonna use nature as your model for farming, nature wouldn't be very natural without animals. Natural farming wouldn't be very natural without animals. Animals provide ecological services that we can't get any other way. That doesn't mean that if you if you don't have access to righteous animal protein, yeah, plant based is definitely the way to go. But that you know we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not an all or nothing. And plant based vegan people tend to be quite black and white. Human beings tend to be quite black and white. We don't have much tolerance for gray. I think that's partly because people are looking outside of themselves for something to believe in. They look outside of themselves because you can see it everywhere. Failures in churches, failures in administration, failure. It doesn't matter. It's Historically, it's everywhere because I think we keep looking outside of ourselves for something to hold onto for stability rather than do the deep inner work to get that it's in you, that sense of belonging, trust, stability, and you you may shift what you invest your time and your energy and your awareness in. But I also think these are great lessons in teaching us to be non-judgmental. I mean, right now I think I've certainly never lived in my you know, 70 plus years, I've never lived at a time where there was so much divisiveness in our, in just our own country, let alone the world. I've never seen this be, people be so oppositional, but I think we're in a big lesson to learn. Are we going to learn to love unconditionally or are we going to just stay in our own camp and fight the guys in the other camp? I think that's a huge lesson that's up for us as a, as a people right now. And, you know, a lot of people don't even want to hear that. They're just, it's so, they're so in their camp that they're just ready to fight, whatever it might be. But I think we have to learn to see the other side and to be okay with disagreeing. Another really like area that I'm super interested in is because you started with this idea of abundance, you know, and I often, I'm so fascinated with people like yourselves who's devoted so much to abundance and gratitude and how does that interact with systems of oppression in your opinion people who are like yeah you can feel like you have gratitude but we've been oppressed and you know there's we're, we're actually in this system of oppression a systemic oppression or the freest people 
living in those systems of impression are the ones that are grateful and less identified. I'll tell you a story from the cafe that embodies this. So guy comes in and he orders a cup of Earl Grey tea and he's drinking it. And, and I it was t- like $3. $3. So he, he it was $3. He tips, puts a $5 in the jar. So he tips two bucks. I, we go check on him. He goes, you know, this is really good Earl Grey it's not bergamot oil, it's bergamot fruit. He tells us all about bergamot and distinctions in bergamot. And he enjoys his cup of tea like, oh my God, best cup of tea. He like completely embraces that cup of tea. He leaves. At the end of the night, we would, Teresi and I, Teresi would do the books. We'd have this woman, Maria would clean up. I would fall, pass out on the bench until Teresi finished the books. Then we would take the leftover rice and quinoa and give it to some homeless people on the street. That night, the same night, this guy T came in. There was a guy lying in the street. I went over, I brought him this box of quinoa. He looked up and it was the guy that had got the tea that had given the 66% tip. So here's a homeless guy that completely zenned out on the tea and gave, I don't know how much, what percentage of his net worth as a gratuity. So it would say that's abundant. Yeah. So that's, that's abundance. That's like, oh my God, doesn't he, the guy was enjoying his, whatever circumstances he had because life's an inside job. Do you you know Lynn Twist? Yeah. Very well. Wow. She's a friend. I think it's in, in her first her workshop, she she reminds us that people with less income tend to give more of their more of their income percentage wise to charity causes, and it's that very thing that you're talking about in terms of the it's our relationship with the money, it's our relationship with the system that affects our ability to to give or to contribute or something. I always try to remember when I'm in that scarcity place, which is so easy to fall into in our world, that there are people out there that are giving so much more than I am that have so much less in whatever way they can. There's another story that she tells that's worth hearing if you haven't heard. And that is that she used to run the hunger project for Warner Earhart and she's in India at mother Teresa's orphanage. And these rich Indian donors come and mother Teresa's waiting on them hand and foot and they're being quite arrogant and mother Teresa, bring me tea. Mother Teresa, bring me this. And mother Teresa's running all around and Lynn twist is just getting more and more and more angry and infuriated. Like these people are so arrogant. Don't they know who she is? Blah, 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 blah. They finally leave. And she went to us, just busts out mother Teresa. How could you stand those people? And she says, Lynn, how come you have so much compassion and love for the physically impoverished and no capacity to love the spiritually impoverished. And she got it like, oh my God. But that's how we operate. We had this experience. We were in India and I remember having this awareness that we see all this poverty, but one of the most powerful ways we could impact that was those of us who live in the West who have our basic needs met and who have more, if we would just be grateful for what we have, that would have a powerful impact on those that don't have. Because Because grateful people do generous things with their money, Resources. resources. And that's kind of 
that's the motivation kind of behind Cafe Gratitude is, you know, when we started this, there was no gratitude movement. There was no almond, commercial almond milk. We used to have to explain to people, how do you get milk out of an almond? And there was no cold brew or cold processed coffee. We were filtering coffee through a wool filter. And, you know, the gratitude movement is now a thing. You know, there's gratitude journals and they teach gratitude at, you know, higher universities. And, and yet we still have so far to go, you know, like it's, can we keep our attention on all that we already have? That's abundance rather than to be wanting more. I think personally where I feel the biggest tug in that is as a parent, because I think that the idea of me creating the security in myself and feeling secure in myself, but then also having people that I'm responsible for providing for, and maybe that's the same as leadership, you know, when you're in a position as a founder and you feel responsible for all the the things that you have brought forth, and particularly as a parent, it's not just about my security, it's about their security and that that inability to like know where the boundaries of that are. And, and I, I have to say, as a, as a founder of my own, of our own organizations, that's where it's so painful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That, that like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm grieving and I can lay death to myself, but hurting someone else in that death process, that's kind of like where my, where that rub is for me at least. Okay, so this is another one that's maybe difficult to hear, but consider that whatever experience you're having, you're the one that's creating it. And that would also be true for your children. Whatever experience they're having, they're the one that's creating it. Now, mostly we want to take credit for our experience if we like the experience we're having. But when we don't like the experience we're having, we want to blame someone else or some circumstance on it and pull victim. See, love can't be hurt. Love just loves. Love always begets more love. So when people say, I'm hurt, okay, They don't relate to it like they're choosing hurt, but they actually are. And they could choose something else. But helping our young people get that that's a choice would be a very powerful move for our culture these days. We say what you think, what you say, what you do, what you believe, and the attitude you have are how you have access to your being, the beingness of human. So if you want to shift who you're being, you shift what you say, what you do, what you think, what you believe, and the attitude. And the beauty of human beings is we're the only creatures that were given free will, free choice. And we don't utilize it most of the time for creating the lives we love. But we have that option. So I think we grow up in this, I'm somehow responsible for someone else's experience, but we then all have to go into recovery to learn, oh, I actually can't be. They're responsible. And part of parenting is helping them take on that responsibility. Not the responsibility to drive a car or to drink, but the responsibility to choose what they think, say, believe, act, and attitude, and how they'll respond to whatever external stimulus there is so that they get, they're the one that's creating whatever experience they're having. I wonder if there's a relationship between the word transparent and 
the word parent. Such a <laughs> weird thing that I'm thinking about right now, as you said, because you said transparent. So the choice to move from they hurt me or the circumstances are hurting me to I'm feeling hurt and I have a choice to stay there or to move on, take responsibility for it. And then I have power. That's what I hear. Like I have power over those feelings, like in a good way. In how you explained it, it sounds like you could just snap your fingers and go, okay, I'm taking responsibility for this feeling and now, I'm just, now, now I can do something with it. But I don't think that it's that simple and I don't, I'm not sure that you think it's that simple. So I'm wondering those that want to take responsibility for our feelings when we're hurt, how we make that transition, how we transform from that. So Adam, I would say one of the things is that all the stimulus is actually supporting, getting that we're supported that there's something here for us to see and learn. Oftentimes why the response is hurt or anger or disappointment is because something's being triggered and it's usually from an earlier similar incident, some wound, some incompletion, here something, here we go again. And so that's what you do. It's like, oh, let me look and see what that is. So it's definitely doing more self reflection and the willingness to believe that, oh, I'm actually being supported in healing this. So that person that I perceive as the one who hurt me is actually showing me where I have some wounding or some incompletion. And if I can learn from that, then I'm able to not react in a similar way next time. It doesn't happen instantly. It takes time and time and time again because we have a tendency to protect those areas and not let them get exposed. That's why we say marriage where you have this 24-7 mirror, the best thing you can do is let them be exposed so that you have an opportunity to heal them. But we as people want to protect those because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to get angry. But all of those are actually opportunities to support the healing process. So again, you have to transform how you see those. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't just say, oh, let's say impatience, which is kind of my thing, impatience. No, I can't say impatience, go away, snap fingers, and then I'll never be impatient again. It's it's huge. It's it's every day just noticing it. Here we go again, saying a prayer, asking the Divine Mother to dissolve this. But if the same thing keeps happening and happening, it's not about the circumstances. It's just, it's all me. We always talk about addicts hitting the bottom rung, right? Well, we're all have to hit a bottom rung. When are you stop trying to change the circumstances? An addict, we're all addicts trying to change the circumstances so we don't have these experiences. <laughs> and that is an addiction. It's a false reality. It is no one has done it. No one has done it ever in the history of humanity. You know, there's four noble truths, right? Nobody's messed with the four noble truths. They're approximately Life is suffering. There's a source of the suffering. The, suf the source of suffering is desire, and there's an, a cessation to desire. Well, okay, it's all in there, but we got to stop looking outside ourselves to find peace because it, it won't ever happen. But most human beings haven't hit the gutter, haven't hit the bottom yet, and they're still, they're still drinking. We got to stop drinking from that well. And that would be a transformation. So the transformation, again, would be seen... Oh, got it. I mean, we used to say in the restaurant, we still say it. If all we got in was whatever experience you're having, you're the one creating it, huge victory. 
Because if people actually got that, it would transform how we live our lives and how we treat one another. And it certainly transformed yours, that movement of choosing to be together in discomfort and to go on that journey together and to continue to kind of move through the obstacles and see them as a gift. Yeah, our our time together has been, you know, such a gift today for us and also for 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 our listeners and i can see adam's got a last question i've been waiting i've been waiting first of all i want to say i completely underestimated you two (laughs) (laughs) good not knowing you and and like that's not meant to be an insult but you far exceeded my expectations for what this was going to be like and who you two are and what you're what you've done in the world and and who you're being in the world so I'm really, really grateful and grateful for people that get to listen to this, even if they know nothing about Cafe Gratitude or anything that you've done, that they get to share some of this wisdom in, in the complexity that you bring it, which leads me to my question. I can't help but think how privileged we are, me and Miriam, to be here with you today, to have people in our lives that kind of hold a role at various, not even age-based, but hold a role of elder right? They bring some wisdom, a bigger wisdom than the webs that we tangle ourselves in on a day-to-day basis and kind of help us step out of that. I wonder what that word means to you. I don't know if that's a role you feel yourselves in. Again, I'm not basing that on age, but just on perspective. You mentioned coaching, things like that, helping other people in that way. I'm wondering what that word means to you, what that role is for you in, in our world, I used to resist it a lot, <laughs> but I'm, I'm embracing it now. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's modeled well in a recovery environment is, you know, people who recover, sponsor and support other people through recovery. And it's actually selfish because you get more out of it probably than you put into it. But that's how we grow. And, you know, I've always been somebody who likes to share. And I think that whatever we're given, we consider a gift. And then it's ours to re-gift, to give back. And when you teach something, you get it for you get yourself it. in a deeper way yeah. anyway. So Another level. It's, it's, you could say it's not selfish, but it, it has its own reward for sure. You know, we have had that conversation. Like when people come out to the farm, it's like, oh, let's go see how grandma and grandpa live. Like there's some, there's some like strange way of living that we don't have much exposure to anymore. So you know, Matthew's always surprised when a full-grown man comes out and doesn't know how to light a fire. That's surprising to him. Or, you know, how many people do you know who know how to milk a cow or even kids that know where chicken McNuggets come from? So we're familiar with the idea that <laughs> that we're elders. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for that. I actually hear that as a, an acknowledgement. And thank you for that. I'm glad that we... I'm glad that we exceeded your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'm also like pointing to the, I don't know, there's a question in there. Like, I know that there are subcultures that are trying to rebuild that role in the world, you know, in a culture that's generally about like, what are you producing today? That's contrary to that to that role, which is like, who are you being and how are you serving with your wisdom? Tercy actually had a vision years and years and years ago about being, well, you should tell the vision. So 
you know, I was living, it, w- it was this vision where I was this woman on the outskirts of town and the powers that be came like riding out on horseback. And they said, you know, we noticed that people are coming out to see you and they're leaving empowered. And, you know, you have to tell us what you're doing or we're going to like sacrifice you in the marketplace. And then, you know, the next vision was this man, the back of a man next to a back of a son. And you could see the woman was being sacrificed in the marketplace. And the awareness was that she had passed on this secret to her son, but really the secret was nothing. Like you actually do nothing. You just be with people, sit with people, be present with people, stop trying to fix them and change them. You just love people the way they are. And, you know, I think that we've grown up in kind of this, everyone needs to be fixed or changed or look a particular way or act a particular way. And I think that's probably caused way more damage than benefit. And that if we could just listen to people and be with people and accept people for the way that they are, we would have a much more powerful impact. Anyway, she, she's a woman that lives five miles outside of town and people come out here to get empowered by her. And so it's happening. It's happening. (laughs) The vision is fulfilled. Those dreams and visions. uh, Watch out. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for empowering us today through this conversation. And Adam, I mean, I'm coming out to Be Love in June and hopefully Adam and I can come out and do something there as well and just spend some time in person and just Great. so grateful for, for all of your stories and, and everything that you bring. Well, and we appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for reaching out. I had no idea what we were sitting down to. Like Teresa just said, okay. <laughs> and, and my expectations were kind of low. So you guys, <laughs> you guys exceed way, really, you well exceeded in your thoughtful questionings, the whole thing. You exceeded my expectations as well. I'm glad you know what I meant when I said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. No, we said it. Like so much cooler. So it was very yeah. great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank okay. you, guys.